Talking Shop with Teresa and Bree, the show where we dish out tips and advice for mystical business owners and service providers. You might be asking yourself, what is a mystical business owner exactly? Well, if you work as a tarot card reader like myself, or an astrologer, Reiki healer, intuitive counselor, oracle medium, or any kind of sacred or mystical art as part of your profession, we're talking about you. My name is Teresa. And my lovely co-host, and I am Bree, and I am so happy to be here with you two lovely, lovely folks. So we've both been self-employed mystics running our own businesses for decades upon decades. We know what goes into running a successful business. We know how much heart, grit, and hustle it takes to get your business afloat and keep things rocking along. And we do this show together once a month, and we've been doing it for quite a few years now because we love sharing the business strategies that we've learned over the years. And most of all, we are very invested in seeing our fellow mystical and spiritual peeps thrive and succeed. Indeed. So in each episode of Talking Shop, we tackle a different topic, and we often feature a special guest. Today's topic is Logos and Design with Ryan Edward. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and thank you, Ryan, so much for joining us this evening. So let's get this show on the road. Yay, and for those of you who do not know Ryan Edward, which how can you not know him? Um, how this is the person not? who designed the maybe Lenormand, Len, and I never say Lenormand, right? The maybe Lenormand deck. Yeah. It's, it's very popular. So hi, Ryan. How are you? Doing well yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, we're doing great. We're so, so happy to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you know, so we we are just here. thrilled. So let's um, let's start with our first question. Um, I, what I want to start right off the bat is digging into the whole thing about logos. And you know, when I think about logos, I think about things like the Coke logo, or um, I think about you know, the Honda or Toyota or Nike, you know, these are some pretty memorable logos. And I think a lot of us, we have logos that we can call to mind quite easily, right? Um, So the first question we'd like to ask you is what makes a logo memorable, Ryan? Ooh, um, great question. I think in my opinion, the, the key word right there is memorable. And I think it's because, um, there's a good adage that I like a lot that um, I resonate with, which is a logo design is more of a marathon than it is a diving competition, meaning that it's more about how long that logo lasts versus how big of a splash it makes. Mm. And I think logos, um, sometimes when you see a logo off the bat, um, you might have like a knee-jerk reaction to the design of it. Um, and that's the splash, you know, that's that visual reaction. And it's kind of like a, you know, a song that you hear that maybe you don't jive with the first time you hear it, but after you hear it a few times, it becomes your favorite song. And those are the great logos. Those are the logos that um, stick with you for so long because there's, um, they have legs. They, they have endurance. They're not caught up in a trend. They're not um, pigeonholed to being to in the moment. They um, they have like a classic timelessness about it. And I think all the logos that you mentioned have that. They are simple, elegant shapes that um, 
aren't more complicated than they need to be. You know, they become iconic in their own right because they're, they're super simple, super elegant, and that gives them longevity. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the, the high-level approach, I would say, to a really nice logo is, you know, is it simple, is it classic, and does it, um, does it give itself legs to um, maybe flex with any um, redirections the brand may take. You know, is, is it a, a nice, um, iconic logo? Which logos do you think really show, like, flex with time, in your opinion? If you came up with some off the top of your head. Oh, I think um, quite a few that you mentioned um, definitely are Nike, obviously. You know, that's a, a simple check mark that has endured for decades, and um, I think the designer was paid $30 for that logo. Um, eventually, oh, oh, she got some oh, shares oh. for the she, – she eventually got some shares um, of, of Nike stock, actually, later down the road, but um, they were they, – they gave her her due for that designer. But, um, you know, McDonald's – you know, the golden M's, whatever you think about McDonald's, you know, that's almost becomes the first like letter that any child learns, um, you know, and it's because, um, yeah, because it's so simple to recognize. It's an M for McDonald's. And it originally used to be one arch, right? I think back um, when McDonald's first came out, it was just a single arch. And then they're like, actually, if we just put two of these together and now we have an M and just that simple, you know, M lasts forever. But um, yeah, it's the target, Target, it's the Apple Apple, it's, they're all really nice um, and simple shapes for the most part. You know, I think if you maybe look at Cadillac, that has a lot of detail to the crest of that logo, but that's because Cadillac's, you know, a little harder toddy, and that's, you know, kind of, um, it's a little bit more opulent in that way. But, um, yeah, for, for general, I think, yeah, any logo that's super simple and can almost be cut out of, like, a single piece of paper, I think that's important. You know, can it just be one color? Can it just be outlined? Um, it doesn't rely on glows and scroll work and, you know, all these little um, <laughs> effects to the logo. You know, you take those effects away because every logo has to be very multi-purpose. You know, it can't be full color all the time. It might be printed on a T-shirt. It might be a rubber stamp. It might be all these other things. So it's it's more than just how it's applied. It's, you know, it's that simple um, core shape of it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I like one of the logos that's always stood out for me is the FedEx logo because of the arrow. Oh, yeah. It's like secretly in in it. And I always like, I just associate that with like swiftness and efficiency and very material to me. So, so when people are designing a logo for their business, you know, we have in our community of listeners a lot of people who are, you know, maybe setting up a site for the first time, you know, starting their business. And of course, when you work with a site a designer, one of the, one of the first things usually that they're going to, you know, start to talk to you about is your logo. And for many of us, you know, when we come into, to this terrain, it's like, you know, it's like somebody is speaking Greek to us. Like, we have no idea what even, you know, what like, what is even on the table and, like, why does this matter? And, like, can't I just use, like, a tarot card image, right? Um, and so when, when you're designing a logo for your business, 
what are some of the things that you should keep in mind? Now, you've, you've already talked about some of them, but, like, you know, especially with an eye to, like, new newcomers, what are, what are some of the things you would like to see people keep at the forefront? Yeah, I think, you know, you kind of touched on it right there. It's, um, it's how it applies, how it applies in all the ways you're going to use it. And, you know, we have, now that we are in a digital world, you know, the game has changed a little bit. Um, logos used to be very, when we were only dealing with print, when we were only dealing with, um, you know, ink on paper or things etched out, there was a very um, permanent aspect to the logo, that's for sure. Um, but now it's digital, so that gives us the a little bit of flex, a little bit of freedom with what we can do with the logo. There's logos that are animated. There's logos that um, are multicolored, or there's um, logos that is maybe a core shape, but then the colors change or the patterns change. Think like the old MTV logo, um, where it was always that M, but it always you know had a different color effect to it. But it was always that core M. But um, so it, it just depends on how it applies. But yeah, regarding digitally, though, in the digital world that we have now, that that's a whole new set of applications we have. So you just mentioned the website, which is a clear one. You know, does it fit ne nicely in you know the header? Sometimes someone might have this grand logo that has all these swirly arms that come out of it. But if you put that in the website, does it balance right? You know, does does it expand outside of your header space? You know, how does that look for the favicon? You know, that little 16-pixel square that sits in the tab, which is one of the main branding consistent elements that um, people lay eyes on. Because um, mm -hmm. within our browsers, within our tabs, we navigate with those tabs. I, I don't know about you. I have, like, 20 tabs open at any one time. And mm -hmm. I use those favicons to navigate myself. So it's 16-pixel square. But that is a constant branding element that, even if you're not on that website, your tabs are open, your browser is open. And so that 16 pixels is there in perpetuity as long as you have that tab open, you know, somewhere in that browser, not even open, just on the browser. So it's thinking about everything from that 16 pixel square to, yeah, how does it look like if it's, you know, printed one color? Can you make it into a, a rubber stamp that you can stamp business cards with? Or, you know, it's just it, it, how it applies. I, would make sure and sometimes it's so easy to get caught up on how pretty the logo is mm -hmm. but you know how does the logo mm -hmm. work you know the, the logo has mm -hmm. to carry weight and if it's not carrying weight then you know it's dead in the water that's great advice that is such yeah it really is and it's so interesting because i think that a lot of us i know i when i started my website and teresa i'd love to hear from you on this like when I started my website, I knew exactly what I wanted my logo to be. My logo has always been a sacred heart, and I and I knew that was going to be my logo. Um, I did not think at the time about how it would transfer to stamps or to stickers, which I love. Um, and I had the first design of it was a little bit more um, – kind of scrolly, like you were saying, and then my the designer that I've worked with forever uh, redid it, and she created one that's a lot more dynamic that I just had printed on a bunch of water bottles, and it looked fantastic. But the, that transferability, I think, is really critical, and a lot of people, when they're starting, like we're just thinking about our website, and we forget, hey, this is something you can use in all kinds of places. 
Right on. And for me, when I was oh. with my designer for mine, we just picked a very, you know, an elegant font. And my main thing was I wanted to have my purple because, <clears throat> for me, my purple and my turquoise are my favorite colors. So, um, you know, that was the primary thing. It's like it's got to be purple. Um, and so we went from there, and she picked a font that I really loved. Yeah, no, that's no, that's spot on too. And I think you know, um, and just to breach kind of what you said about the scroll work, which I I know I've kind of used that as an example. You know, it, it something can be ornate, something can be a little bit um, scrolly, if you will. It's just you know, how does it balance? You know, does it apply? Yeah. And um, right. So yeah, I think that totally matters. And Teresa, love your logo. I think you know your colors have been such a core branding element too. But even that that typeface that you use is so to me it's just as iconic as your color color family and obviously it all works together and that's when it's you know your brand in its full essence but i can see that typeface somewhere else um you know out in the wild that's not even in those colors i immediately think of teresa and it's um, it's just because it's those simple those simple iconic forms and um yeah so it's it's not only it's the whole of the parts, but it's the parts themselves and how do they stand alone? Because sometimes in the application, you may not have use to all those parts, but yeah. Right. So you talked about it being transferable, um, but let's talk about classic design principles. Do you think there are any design principles that are universal for logos? Ooh. Um, I would just, um, cut down to what I think is the, the key design principle, and it kind of harkens back to all that, is um, well, there's a designer um, that has Dieter Rams, and he has what he calls the 10 principles of design that um, a lot of designers gravitate towards. And um, his um, test principle basically is the, the capstone principle, and it's um, the best design is as little design as possible. And it's and it just goes back to keeping it um, keep it simple, stupid. You know, it's the kiss method. It's um, <laughs> if you take away anything that's extra, you're only left with what's the best. And um, you're also that in turn gives you that um, those legs to um, have a, a marathon logo. You know, that can extend long time by just um, yeah, definitely keeping it simple. I. You know, there's everything else. You know, there's good color theory, of course. There's form and balance and, you know, rhythm and, you know, all those um, design fundamentals, basically, that come into play. But, um, yeah, just make sure that it is um, simple and is definitely as um, relevant as possible. Make sure that, you know, the logo definitely um, speaks to who you are and, you know, speaks to who your brand is, speaks to who your industry is. Um, while at the same time not, you know, being a cliche of that as well. You know, it's you want your logo to represent you and your industry, but sometimes that can get um, overplayed um, in an industry. And so you also got to make sure that while your logo speaks to your industry, it doesn't become white noise in a sea of tarot card logos, we'll, we'll just say. You know, um, how, how does it mm-hmm. communicate that but stand apart at the same time? And, that you know, that's the dance. That's a delicate balance, and that's usually what the designer is really focused on, especially in the beginning. Um, if you outsource to a designer, that is, um, where they 
they really bite down hard on the, the research and the referencing because they're looking at not only what your industry is, what your competitors are doing, you know, how do you stand apart from your competitors, but how do you elicit your brand qualities, how do you elicit your services all into a simple shape. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tall order. It can be. Um, but, it's yeah, it's just making sure that it's, it's relevant but not too relevant where it becomes a cliche and um yeah just um you know it's temperance right it's just it's that perfect balance mhm mhm absolutely so you know speaking of going outsourcing work to a designer um can you kind of take us through the process that you go through when you sit down with a client and are commissioned to design a logo for them? Like, what are the questions that you're asking? What do you want them to be aware of? What are you aware of as well as you go through that? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, There's always um, a discovery process, we'll say. Um, It's a process where um, I get to know the client. I get to know, you know, kind of all those fundamental questions and um, learn about them as much as possible. So outside of, you know, the very practical questions, you know, how is this logo going to get used? Is it going to be seen on the website more than it's going to be seen in print? You know, all those, you know, basic fundamental questions that we kind of touched on in the beginning. But, um, Definitely, you know, who their competitors are, who, um, what, what are the people that they're going to be compared against if, um, a cl- you know, one of their clients is Googling or researching or, you know, fielding, fielding people, you know, who, who are the other logos that are going to be on that landscape, basically, you know, it's the, the, the industry brand landscape. Um, so not only that, the designer is going to be looking at who those people are, but what colors are they using to make sure that your colors stand apart from the other colors? Because that's due diligence. There's, it's called a brand lands, uh, a color brand landscape where you typically in the, in any industry, you'll see where, um, like say, well, so-and-so is red. So-and-so owns blue. So-and-so owns green. So our brand is going to own orange because we're all in the same industry and we use colors to differentiate ourselves. You know, I think um, sample sugars are a good example of that where, you know, everybody sees blue, pink, and yellow, and they know immediately that they're getting the sweet <laughs> most Splenda or equal. You know, it's, 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 maybe that's an oversimplification, and we're kind of talking about overall brand and not just the logo at that point. But, yeah, it's, it's really laying out all the competition on a board and kind of seeing where are the common elements, how can that person stand apart? So outside of that, it's also, you know, just getting known to the person, you know, what, mm-hmm. what do they like? What is their personal style? Because that's definitely a very big layer to all of this, you know, um, are they fun and flirty? Are they, you know, buttoned up and serious? Do they want to feel more corporate? Do they want to see like, seem like down home and you're just, um, they have a shingle outside their door, and that's how you're finding out about them. You know, um, do they want to seem earthy? Do they want to seem ethereal? Do um, do they have wit about them? You know, are they more serious? And I think um, that's an, a quality to make sure that's um, really worked into the tone of the piece, um, and the piece being the logo, the brand, um, what have you. You know, the brand and logo, they're 
they're the same, but they're definitely different. I think that's been touched on other podcasts that you have, um, where the the logo is definitely not the encapsulation of the brand or the crystallization right. of it, but it's definitely it's a it's a capstone piece, if you will, um, that a lot of other elements support. Um, but yeah, outside of that, it's also understanding what brands does that um, client um, gravitate towards that are outside of their field. So um, if it's certain fashion brands that they like or if it's certain, um, I don't know, packaging that they love from a certain, their favorite cereal. It could be that simple, you know, but um, what are other brands that are outside of their industry? Because sometimes if you only use logos and brands that are um, inside that industry, then it kind of comes a bit incestuous at that point, you know, as far as logo referencing, because it, it kind of just becomes this, like, well, everything's referential of each other, and that's when you become really, um, you start to get those commonalities and cliches in an industry is because everybody's just looking at, or everybody's just copying off their neighbor. So mm-hmm. if you go outside of that and you're starting to look at other brands that are in your industry that you jive with, with for other reasons, what are those logos and why do you jive with them? And um, that's definitely another layer to um, bring into everything, I would say. That's really great advice because, um, you know, I've certainly had my own issues with people who really liked my design and web copy a little too much. And I know that that can really blur lines and it can create brand confusion. So, you know, um, when I put together my site, you know, my inspirations were not anybody inside my my industry because uh, I all, all I really am about being the individual. And Bree, I'm probably sure that was the same with you. You probably the last thing you were thinking about, gee, when I'm inspired, I, I want to be just like Teresa, right? You know, it's like we pick our yeah. own thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. I mean, and you know, I think I think from my perspective, you know, and I'm sure that I know this is true for you too, Teresa, and I'm sure it is for you as well. And like I, you know, when I looked at colors and I I looked at my logo, I was also thinking about the magical significance. Yes. You know, like what is this? You know, what does this particular palette evoke? You know, I went with a palette that's black, white, and a very deep crimson because those are my favorite colors to work with magically. They're not necessarily colors that I wear every day. And then my accent is gold. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there's deep significance to why I work with those colors. And, you know, there's a deep significance to why I have a sacred heart on my as my logo. And so, you know, that, too, is a part of it. it you know, this is, to me, like, this is one of your magical signatures. So it better be unique and custom and one of a kind (laughs) right on and you know it's interesting i love that you said about the colors because you know color i feel so important and for me purple is always it's got that mystical um i think of prince i think of which of course you guys know i'm a music fanatic so that you know rock and roll and music and rap always has a huge influence in everything that i do but you know when i think purple i think mysticism, I think spirituality, I think regal, I think royal, I think funky, I think David Bowie, I think Prince, all of that. And for me, turquoise, one of my other core colors, it's soothing. You know, it's very soothing. When I was a little girl, blue was my favorite color. 
and I had this blue tin cup that I drank out of, and nobody was allowed to touch that damn cup because it was my blue cup. I wore blue dresses. I wore blue a lot. So that's why the turquoise is there. You know, it's got the childhood thing. It's also got that soothing feeling. And my accents are gold and gray. And gold, for me, is because the sun is my favorite card in the deck. And it's bright and it's gold Mm -hmm. and it's sunny and it's optimistic. And I tend to be more of an optimistic person. But that little gray is just a reminder that, you know, there's a little dark here too. So there's all kinds of meanings that are magical, but also about my personality. And I think, you know, with mm-hmm. what we're talking about tonight, it is so important to have colors and symbols and things that really represent you, not just what's quote-unquote standard in the industry, which, Ryan, you made this point so clear. So that was really brilliant. Ah, thank you. Thank you. So let's just uh, then go right into talking about web design. You know, we already talked about logos. You know, what are the things that you should consider when you're putting together your online hub? I mean, obviously we already <laughs> probably some of the advice here about <laughs> picking your own thing, but I want to hear. Yeah, go. I love that ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I work um, in, a, in an agency um, as a, you know, in a day job. Um, so I kind of have this um, experience from a couple ways. I've built my own website for my cards and all that, but then I also work. Um, yeah, in an agency where we design websites for clients, and those are huge projects that have so many levels of consideration that we have to have a, a, a post-mortem meeting after every website, because after every website, we're learning something new that did go great and something, usually many things that went horribly wrong, and it's always something new every time. So, yeah, there's so much to a website. And unlike a logo, which has to be this nice, simple piece that has to work in so many different applications, the website is similar, but it has so many moving parts to it. Um, so I think the the main consideration is considering what all those parts are and how do they relate. And I, again, simple goes better. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've seen a big trend in websites, over, especially the past 10 years, where um, there's stuff called flat design and minimal design, where our websites have become much more simpler. They've become much more elegant. You know, they don't have, like, all these rounded buttons and, you know, um, there's definitely not little animated GIFs everywhere like we saw, you know, in GeoCities back <laughs> in the 90s. You know, we kind of went from that first, like, oh, my God, the, the website is new. What's, what can we do to it? And then we kind of went into, in the 2000s, what we called Web 2.0, which everything had, like, this glossy button and everything had rounded corners and it felt like Apple at the time. And it was our kind of our way of, like, starting to feel like, okay, we need to maybe streamline this, not outside of our website, but as a whole collective. So when a user comes to your site, you know, they have some intuitive sense on how to use it. Um, but now we've kind of taken that to the new, next step, which is, um, and that's kind of driven by um, responsive design, mobile design, um, because what websites are not static anymore. They're not just something that fits on your desktop. It fits on your phone. It fits on your laptop. You know, um, depending on your watch, it might be viewable there. You know, it can be viewable on your refrigerator if you happen to have a computer with a, you know, a fridge with a computer on the 
door, which is a reality, you know, um, there's not any one standard screen size anymore. So the website has to be super flexible. And that's, again, another reason that it has the layout of it has to be um, super simple and not boxed into anything. Um, but yeah, as far as like the discovery questions with a designer and, you know, the client, I think it's, it's very similar to, um, to the logo process, you know, just kind of understanding the brand and understanding the competitors. But there's a whole other layer on how you're going to use the website. What kind of content do you have? How often are you going to publish the content? What is your digital strategy? How does social tie in? It's, all of those um, functional questions that come into play, and you kind of got to map those out really well first. You know, um, when we do a website at my office, we have a whole discovery phase, and that's followed by a whole strategy phase where they're discovering, like, okay, this is what we're going to do for inbound. This is how we're going to bring people to the site. This is how we're going to pe take people through the site. Um, uh, you know, like a customer journey, if you will. They'll land on this page, and they'll see this you know, page, it'll see this link, and that will take them to the sales page, and that's where we'll make a purchase or a sale or book a reading or what have you. Um, so it's it's a strategy phase where you're kind of mapping that all out. You know, it's very it's very air. It's very you know, putting everything on the on the board and seeing where all the lines connect, and then from there you take that to architecture where you're actually like creating the outline of the site. You know, what are the parent categories? What are the pages that go below those? And that's all, you know, that's all supported by the strategy, you know. Um, and I think it's it's good to keep, you know, that architecture simple. Everything's simple. Everything needs to be simple. But, um, yeah, keeping the architecture um, coherent with that. Um, but I think the, the key um, thing that I would say to keep in mind um, as far as that whole strategy and um, content, um, especially with, designing the site and then once it gets into the the client's hands when they get the keys basically to drive the site and publish as they see fit is making sure that the expectations or the goals meet up to reality so often we'll see, we'll design a site that's super complicated because the client has this like really grandiose um blog strategy and we're going to have all of these weekly posts under all these different categories and they're going to have all these blog series. And then when it, the keys are handed to them to drive the site and to start publishing and creating this content, they don't. They, mm -hmm. It falls to the mm -hmm. last of their list. And then they have a site that is completely built around the idea of a blog and then they don't have time to blog. And so right. the whole site, like, you know, essentially deflates. So that is, and I'm guilty of this myself. I, you know, I built a, um, a site with uh, my web developer who I was my coworker. I had the, the luxury of that. So, um, you know, I got to do everything how I wanted from the ground up and I built it around. And it, luckily it wasn't too, like, it wasn't too dependent on the blog, but the blog was very considered in a lot of the development. And I, I, I blog a couple times a year, if that. Um, I need to get better, and that—that's me. And that's a whole other conversation for any, me or anybody. You know, make sure you blog. But um, if you're going to have a website, if you're going to put the time, resources, and um, effort into redeveloping a site, especially around a, a content practice 
life blogging or content strategy or whatever that is, make sure that you're already practicing that strategy because, um, A, you may not live up to your goals, um, mm-hmm. and hopefully you do, but then also you, you may pivot based on the reality of the situation. Oh, maybe you realize X amount of blogs makes more sense than Y amounts of blogs or you need to, um, yeah, just pivot your strategy for whatever reason and just make sure that you've kind of worked out those kinks before you've just spent so much time, effort, and money into building a site that is um, hinges on that, I would say. Well, you can, couldn't you create a site, too, where you can have room to expand, you know, where you can always add absolutely. I, and stuff? Absolutely. I think that is, I think that's definitely the way to go is build a site that is, tailored to what you are doing at that moment or with your with your current site or your previous site or whatever you're doing at that moment. Make sure it's already up to your speed and then let it grow. Yeah, always give it room for growth. And the, the simplicity, hopefully, and the simplicity in architecture, the simplicity in layout gives you that affordance to grow later. If you do something super complicated, that only paints you into a corner. So the more you can grow, the more flexibility you have all the better, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like I like what you're emphasizing, Ryan, that, like, you really, one of the most important things to know is that you need, you need to have a sense of what you want your website to do because different sites do different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, is, are you all, are you, like, say me, I'm, you know, a card artist. So people are coming to my, you know, website for images, you know, versus maybe someone that is a heavy blogger and they're coming to them more for what they have to say, their words. Maybe someone is more video-based. Maybe someone is, you know, more social-based. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, yeah, it's making sure that it's definitely tailored to who you are, what you do, and what you put out there. Um, yeah. But then, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, along these same lines, I would like to ask you what your do's and don'ts for website design are, and I would like to refine <laughs> that question a little bit and and ask specifically for our industry, right, our metaphysical, card-slinging, energy-healing, sacred arts-making industry, like what... What are the, you know, if you could, if you could sit down with, you know, uh, a person who's deciding to take her tarot practice to the next level of professionalism, like, what are the do's and don'ts that you would like to share with respect to website design, especially for us? <laughs> hmm. Specifically for this, for the, our our industry. Well, and you can um, give us general too, but if there are any that like yeah. for our industry you you feel strongly about, we would love to hear that. Yeah, let me start general, and then let me see where that takes us. Um, general, I mean, obviously, I've kind of you know the the repeating record of you know keep it simple, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. I definitely think that um, don't get to, one thing. Um, is important is um, make sure that you're you're not getting too image heavy. And I know I just said I'm a card artist and people come to my website for images and maybe that's an exception. But um, 
make sure that you don't have images all over the place to where, A, it's um, confusing or distracting to the user, but also um, you're considering the page load of things. Make sure that um, you're considerate of the the user at the end. Um, you know, now that we're, we've kind of come full circle to where we've, We've had dial-up, but then we got all these fast internets, but now we're back on our phones, which aren't necessarily as bad as dial-up, but, you know, they don't have, you know, great cable connections necessarily. So, um, you know, is what you're putting out there um, accessible, I think is very important. Um, so do consider that. Do 300%, can't stress this enough, do consider the typography on your website. Um, make sure mm. that you have um, lots of styles set with your designer. Um, there should be more than just like, here's your header, here's your body. You know, what's a subhead look like? What's a, a what's called an H3, you know, a, a sub subhead or an H4, you know, all these, it's usually like a scaling size of headers for um, based on how far they're nested in the story. You know, what does a pull quote look like? Is there a certain button or um, bullet style? Um, what does a caption look like? Um, how does, you know, and how does that all look together? So absolutely considering the typography, especially if you're blog focused, because if I'm coming to your blog and everything is just set in block paragraphs, all the same type, I, if I'm really into you and I know this is going to be a great blog, I am going to read that every letter of it. But if I'm, I don't know you from Adam and I just came to you from Google and I just see like a wall of text, Eh, I, I may skim, I, it's that, um, and I may bounce really quickly, and that's because I'm, it's too overwhelming, it's too daunting, you know, that's why we see, you know, whatever you feel about it, like things like BuzzFeed, where there, everything is listicle, and it's because, and not that you have to, let me, you don't have to dumb down your content to be like BuzzFeed necessarily, but when you come to a BuzzFeed article or, you know, any um, popular blog, um, you can usually scan them because you can see these big, like, subheads of a category, how is the content broken up, and then you can, like, zero in, okay, this is what I want to see, this is the meat of what I came here to know, and then you can dive down from there. But if you're given kind of like a wall of text where everything is given the same hierarchy, then that means that that user really only can start from the beginning, and that may be more time than what they're willing to commit, especially if they're just coming to you from Google and you are one of, you know, 30 tabs that they just popped open to search on a certain subject. So absolutely consider the, the typography, you know, does it, does it have a hierarchy that you can use to help tell your story? Because there's storytelling through words, but there's also the storytelling of how those words are being used visually to, you know, add extra emphasis, I would say. So that is a big, huge, huge, huge. Um, definitely, I think I touched on this, you know, how does it respond? How does it work on your mobile phone? That is absolutely um, important if you are very social-based. Are you getting a lot of your traffic through Facebook? Is that a lot of your social strategy? Is a lot of your social strategy to be – to have Facebook as like that core hub that feeds a lot of people into your website. If that's the case, most people use Facebook on their phone. Mm -hmm. So if you have a strategy that is really focused on people coming to your website through Facebook, but your website is optimized for the desktop, that's a huge disconnect because people are coming to your site, yeah, one way, 
but you've not optimized it for those people. You've not optimized it for the people, most of the people that you're trying to bring to your site. So um, huge consideration there. Um, as far as don'ts, um, don't have music play on your site when someone comes to it. Um, and I definitely think that's something that you can say specifically to the mystical folks. Um, you you may want to be serene, but I don't need to hear that. No Inya, I don't need to hear a liar in the background. Um, and, yeah, so that would that would be something I'd say that is um, something – for the most part, has gone by the wayside, but in our industry, has kind of stuck around for a little bit. Um, <laughs> but with that, you know, um, yeah, just don't 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 be too much. Don't be too extra. I don't want to use certain adjectives because I don't want to be offensive. But um, <laughs> don't don't be too flashy. Don't be too flashy. We'll put it that way. Oh, and speaking of flashy, don't use flash. Don't use Adobe Flash. Um, right. That is a technology that um, the technology industry has tried to sever in all the ways possible. Apple was the first person to do it, but it's an old technology. Even if you have, like, this fun header that you were able to get for free that was made from Flash where you put a photo in and it added a, a lake ripple to your photos so it could be all animated, that's probably using Flash, and just don't use that because half the people won't even be able to see it. Um, yeah, so don't use flash, don't use be flashy, don't have extra music playing. Don't um don't have um unneeded pop-ups. Um I know some people mm -hmm. they'll use something for um a newsletter, but if you're doing that, make sure it pops up in a tasteful way. If you're blocking me from your content um and I have to close out of a full screen pop-up, that's just inconsiderate and that's a bit annoying. Um, so yeah, just most everything in the don't do is don't be offensive or obtrusive to your user. Um, the user is coming to your site, they have their hand on the mouse. And so we have become accustomed to not anything that we don't click on that is played automatically is jarring to us and is almost offensive to us. It's kind of like, you know, in the nineties where, or, you know, years ago where, someone could come to your door, you used to be really excited because there was this, you know, a surprise. There's someone at your door. Now we don't want someone at our door. We don't want someone at our door unless we know they're coming to our door. Um, and I think that's, you know, applicable to the websites. We want things to only play or click or do something when we activate it. Otherwise, we feel like we are out of control and it feels virusy. It feels clickbaity. It feels, yeah, it just feels like um, boundaries are being crossed a little bit. Um, so, yeah, just be really um, subdued and subtled and um, considerate, and it's all, in those, it's all in those details. That's awesome advice. We're coming right down mm -hmm. to, like, the end of the our time together, too. So we just want one real quick question. Uh, what is your advice for working with a graphic artist or web designer? So if I'm going to hire you, Ryan, which now you're convincing me that I need to hire you, what would be your <laughs> advice? <laughs> um. Be trustful in your designer, um, especially if you are paying decent money for someone. And not that money is equivalent to um, quality. Um, just some people may um, 
want to hire a, a design student, which is totally, totally within reason and um, maybe the more, you know, a, a more economical option than hiring someone that has, you know, 20 years experience under the belt. Um, but whoever they are, trust them and work with them and be collaborative. Um, but be open for your ideas to be challenged. Um, if you have this clear idea of what you want your stuff to be, then um, you're not given a lot of room for the designer to um, work their magic, so to speak, you know. Um, and the designer has a wealth of knowledge that um, informs their design decisions. And be open to hearing about why that neon green logo maybe doesn't work the best and why doesn't it work? Um, but also I would say I, I find a lot of common commonalities in how I um, say read cars for someone and the whole design process. I think there's the back and forth, especially like say you're a car, you know, you're a car reader, your clearance comes to you and there's that whole, tell me what's going on. What's your question? And they might have a question. You're like, well, let, let's rephrase your question. Let's rephrase your question a little bit, because if we rephrase it, then we'll be able to, you know, really focus on this, or we're going to be really clear about how we achieve this. And it's kind of that back and forth and really nailing down on those questions and those goals then allows you to um, move forward in that process in a little bit better way. It's, it's kind of, kind of um, relinquishing your power a little bit and trusting someone, which can be fairly scary, um, especially mm -hmm. if it's something like your business, you know, and the, the, the visual, visual reaction of your business. Um, but also understand that that person, if you have found a good designer, they are every, every choice that they're making in that design process, they are behind 150% because they want the best, because they also want a good portfolio piece. Designers do what they do to get better every time. So they're not doing what they're doing to be stubborn or to definitely to sabotage you whatsoever. What they're doing is um, really um, informed, considerate decisions that they want for the best for both of you, basically. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're always right. And you can definitely have some discussions and back and forth and I think it's um, a very symbiotic process. You know, the designer makes, you know, makes the client think, and the client can definitely have some feedback that makes the designer think, like, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I'm short-sighted on how I'm achieving that goal um, through my design process. So it's definitely being trusting. But um, I would say if you do have feedback or criticisms or critiques or edits to your design with the designer, is to make sure you're focused on what that essential goal is that you're trying to achieve with those edits. Um, so an example of this, um, a super simple example of this would be you have a header image and you say, well, I want that header, that type on that header to be, I want it to be 30 points bigger. I want it to be italicized. I want it to be underlined. I want it to be red and I want it to have a glow behind it. Well, what you're really just trying to say there is I want the header to be, I want it to stand out more. I want it to be more prominent. That's the essential essence. That's a little redundant. That is the essence of what you're trying to say when you're trying to give really specific direction with 
big and red and underlined, you're really just saying, I want this logo, this header to stand out. So focus on just those essential goals of what you want, and then let the designer solve for how to achieve those. So um, that was something that was, you know, taught to me early, early on in my very first internship from my mentor. She's like, yeah, sometimes when a client comes to you, they're trying to give you the solution. That's what they're paying you for. They're paying you to Mm. solve. So come to the designer with the problem. Let them find the solution. So otherwise, you're just paying for someone to just be monkey hand and to just create something, you know, at your spec. And then they're just a production artist. They're not a designer. You're the designer at the point. And if you have a design background, great. Lots of card people do um, or mystical folks. You know, there's definitely that right brain creativity sphere that we all live in, um, designers and mystical people alike. Um but yeah, you're you're paying for them to solve the problems for you. So um, give them the problems, let them find the solution. Brilliant. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much, Ryan. That that is very right on. So believe it or not, we are now wrapping up this episode of Talking Shock. We we have had such a lovely time with you, Ryan. So. We always like to go through and talk about our biggest takeaways from the episode. So, Teresa, what was your biggest takeaway from this episode? Well, I love what Ryan said about keeping your site subdued and, um, you know, not having everything, like, all, like, in the person's face, really thinking about how to make it, like, there's almost, like, boundaries there, which I really, really love that because, you know, um, I've got terrible taste. I'll, I'll say I'm like Liberace inside. And so I love really glittery, shiny, cluttery things. So, you know, that's really great advice for someone like me. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I love that. I I really thought, found that was useful. I think a lot of us need to hear that. So what about you, Bree? What was your biggest takeaway or what is the favorite piece of advice that you got from Ryan tonight? Well, I like there were two that I really liked. The first was about the logo, and again, mm-hmm. just that that concept of transferability. Like, oh yes, that I really yeah. You, yeah, you know, I really feel like in in this very web heavy world, like we can forget that not everything is virtual all of the time, and your logo. You might, like, I was so excited when I put my logo on a water bottle, you know, like, it was really awesome. It was 3D, and it's right here. Um, and so that, I think, is really, really an important point that you made, Ryan. And then the other one, I really liked what you said at the end, that, you know, like, if you're working with a designer and you paid the money to hire a designer, you need to trust them, you know, and... And, you know, whether you, you know that you don't have the best taste, um, I'm very much like you, Teresa. Like, I'm like, hello, kitty and sparkles everywhere. What could possibly go wrong? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? But, um, but, but even if you think you have great taste, like, you know, you, you're hiring a designer to help you. And so you need to be really clear about what you want and then you need to trust your people, you know, you trust who you hire to work with you. And I think that's really right on advice that can be applied to many areas, but definitely this one. Yeah, all in all, it's just great advice. Good stuff to think about. Yeah. So, 
Towards the end of each episode, we all like to share a few fun tidbits, the books that we've been reading lately, the blogs that we're obsessed with, our favorite songs, our TV shows, <coughs> Game of Thrones, um, food, stuff like that. You know, just, <laughs> just some fun stuff that we think you, our listeners, might enjoy discovering, too. Sometimes we might share business-related recommendations and sometimes not. Because, you know, it can't all be business all the time. So, Teresa and Ryan, we're going to ask you this, too. What is something that you've discovered recently or something that you've been loving lately? Two things. I want to be real brief. Did I tell you about the hummus (laughs) war we're having over here? No, but I know you're making some right now. Yes. Well, anyhow, my daughter is convinced that she's got the world's greatest hummus. And, you know, of course... When it comes, I'm not a competitive person until it comes to cooking. And there was a recipe that I was sitting on for months out of this magazine called Milk Street. And it's Milk Street, and it's about how to make the perfect hummus. And it's Israeli hummus, and you serve it warm. So I said, you know, forget her. I'm going to make this hummus. And I made it. I got to tell you, this stuff is mind blowing. So uh, Milk Street, they have a new cookbook out, and I believe that the hummus recipe is in there, and it is so amazing you serve it warm it's so good and the other thing that i'm obsessed with i am obsessed with megan divine who is on twitter you can find her as refuge in grief she writes about grieving and you know i've had a lot of losses in the, especially the last two years i've had two really significant losses in my life i don't really talk about it but i've written about it and she's written this amazing book called it's okay that you're not okay Meeting grief and loss in a culture that doesn't understand. And it is such a powerful and raw book. It's coming out in just a few days. I've got a copy here, though. Um, it's raw. It's powerful. And for those of us who don't grieve the natural ways, I think it's a book that really is needed. So I'm really into Megan Devine, and I think everybody needs that. So so what about you, Ryan and I Bree? Like we want to hear you too, Brie. Let's, Let's hear Ryan. with Ryan. You tell us, Ryan. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, one thing I'm – what's something I've kind of been into all year, but I'm in a new phase of it right now, is um, my herb garden. Um, and I know that's, yeah, maybe something a lot of people are like, yeah, it's nothing too big. But um, I've always – We think herb gardens are awesome. Super big. Yeah, it went super big this year, but now I'm at the phase where it's time to harvest, and now I get to play with all the stuff. So I've always done, like, culinary art, you know, just had a little herb garden. I had my rosemary, my basil, you know, what have you. But, you know, now I have valerian and angelica and um, nightshades and, you know, all these fun medicinal type, um, feverhue, you know, all these um, herbs that are more medicinal, and I get to start, I'm starting to dry and tincture and, um, making salves and everything. So that is something I, it's my, yeah, it's definitely my little alchemical resort in my, my home right now is just, um, doing, sitting up the, sitting in the kitchen and doing something that's outside of, you know, standard cooking is something I'm having mm-hmm. a lot of fun with. And some other thing that is, I'm really excited about that I'm about to do maybe after this call is watch the new Beguiled movie, mm. the new Sophia Coppola movie. I'm super excited. I have not seen it, so maybe it's a little premature to give this recommendation or this, you know, this kudos. But um, I've heard nothing but great things. I've loved the original. I love Sofia Coppola. I love the cast, and I cannot wait to watch it. 
Ooh. Cool. Ew. And Bree, what are you into now? Come on. Fess up. What am I into? I am into, okay, so I have found a new novel series. And the first one is called Chief Inspector Bruno. And they take place in southern France. And the main character is a inspector, obviously police inspector, and he's a Pisces. You find out, I think, in the third book, and you know I have a thing for Pisces. And what it was, so what you would like about this, Teresa? So it's you know French countryside, uh, murder, mystery, mayhem, all very eight house, happy place for me. And there are awesome food scenes where there's, like, French cooking with amazing ingredients mm. and, like, you know, kind of takes you through, like, how how does one make potage fromage, right? Like, and so I am just, I'm super into it. So there's, you know, and, and they're written by a guy who, he is a, he's, like, worked in a political think tank. He was, like, a D.C. person, like, you know, total serious, like, white-collar job, um, crafting policy, basically, who then spends part of his, his year every year in the south of France and really has fallen in love with this particular region of Europe, which is interesting because, you know, it's one of the places in Europe where um, there's been the longest period of uninterrupted human settlement, so not too far from, like, the caves of Lascaux. So he's just created this entire world, and I think there's, like, you know, eight or nine novels, and I am... I'm just devouring them. <laughs> They're so good. Um, so I'm really into that. And then the other thing I've been into is uh, herbal honey. So, Ryan, this speaks to your herb garden. Um, you know, basically making making very uh, finely ground, you know, finely ground plants that you then mix with raw honey so that you almost have a paste. And making them, you know, the the first one that I had um, is for, you know, health and immunity and stuff like that. So if you start to feel like you're getting sick, you just take a little spoonful. Um, but, you know, the ritual uses for this are pretty awesome. Like I've got dreams of like a rose, blackberry, pomegranate seed, herbal honey, like brewing in the back of my mind. So those are the two things that I am really into right now. <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I love Megan's work too. Shout out, shout out for her for sure because her work is pretty, pretty phenomenal for anyone who's experienced any kind of loss. I love her work. Right on. Yeah. So, all right. Last but not least, a few announcements. So, Teresa, is there anything you want our listeners to know about that's happening in your business world? Any upcoming classes or new projects, things like that? Two different things. I'm going to be in Boulder, Colorado, and Denver, Colorado next month. Um, In the middle of the month, I will be at the Boulder Bookstore on the 12th at 7.30 doing a little appearance. And then I'm going to be at Trunk Nouveau. Uh, in Denver on the 13th, doing a little coloring event there. And also next month, speaking of death and grief and all that, I am going to be teaching an online workshop with Andrew McGregor, who we all love, and 
uh, Camelia Elias, who we love too, it's called Seth. Mm-hmm. Sex, <laughs> Seth. It's called Sex, Death, and Destruction uh, with the Tarot, and it's going to be a three-night course on the three most troublesome cards. And I'm going to be handling death, and I will be talking about you know death, like the death card, but also I'm going to be going there and talking about talking about death in a reading because I think that's a subject a lot of us don't like talking about and I've had a lot of experience mm. with it and I think it's something we need to talk about so that's me. What about you Bree and Ryan anything with you too we're going to ask you in a second Bree anything you want to promote? Um, two things that are coming up in Bree land. The first is the Book of Hours, the 2018 Sacred Arts Book of Hours that has all of the astro dates and all of the prompts for every single important astrological event in 2018. I give you a question that you get to think about for each one of them, eclipses, lunar phases, solar phases. And so that will be coming out on October 1st. And you can get that. You'll be able to get it at the site. I'll make an announcement on my uh, mailing list. And then the lunar light service. This is a devotional candle that I bless and I dress and I set uh, once a month for 12 months on the full moon. In 2018, we start with a full moon. January 1st is a full moon. So the lunar light service will be opening probably like end of October for people who want to get in on that. We have a, I have a very robust group of people who already participate and um, I love, it's one of my favorite things to do. So those are the two Big one for me right now. What about you, Ryan? Oh, yeah. Um, my year is kind of winding down at this moment, um, and I'm kind of thankful for that. But what um, what I'm still working on right now that is still available is um, my second deck, The Play in Marseille. Um, it's a limited hand-painted edition right now. Um, it's an edition of 100, and I think um, the first 85 is spoken for about, um, or a little bit more. So there's about 10 or 15 left that are still available, um, and that the and they're um, being painted on within this next month. Um, there's a few orders that I'm catching up on. Those people have been very patient. They'll be getting their deck. But, um, yeah, so there's about 10, 12 um, decks still available. And then um, after that, I'm kind of retiring for 2017, kind of um, taking a step back, recouping, and planning for 2018. Um, yeah, next year. So, um, yeah, that's really about it. Is if you've been eyeing the limited edition play in Marseille, there's only a few left of those to grab. Mm. But um, hopefully there will be a, a, a regular edition, you know, down the down the line like there was for the Lynn Ullman. But um, stay tuned on that one. Well, I predict it will. I just know it's going to happen. <laughs> so you guys are here. He's psychic. <laughs> yes, and, and Bree knows. Bree, Bree's gotten proof. <laughs> When I say that something's going to happen, I've been right, haven't I, Bree? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like you're psychic or something. Yeah. <laughs> so before we sign off, a happy reminder, if you love Talking Shop, don't forget that you can listen to all of the previous shows for free. And you can do that by going to iTunes and searching for Talking Shop with Teresa and Bree. Or you can go to thetarolady.com, and if you click on free resources, you're going to go down to podcasts and you'll find the Talking Shop button down there. And Bree, where can they find it on your site? Basically, same deal, you guys. Go to com, 
uh, head over to the Books and Resources tab. You will see the free resources pop up under that. Click on that, and you will find the current Talking Shop show and all of the archives. And so, so of course, Ryan, we want to really thank you for being here today with us. And could you tell people where they can find you? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, my website is inset.cards. So I-N-S-E-T dot C-A-R-D-S. Um, No.com, just inset.cards. And um, you can find me on Instagram also at Ryan of Spades. And then my link is there as well. All right, folks, so that is an official wrap. So please join us again for another round of Talking Shop. And until then, you can find me, Teresa, at thetarolady.com. And, Bree, where can they find you? And you can find me at com. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We hope that you keep taking action to build the mystical business of your dreams and that you stay on your grind and make it a great night. We know that you will. Have a great night. Good night. Good night.